You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we come to your word this morning because it is our heart's desire not only to understand it, but to obey it. And we ask that through your word and by the power of your spirit that you would edify us and equip us and encourage us this morning. We pray that as we bring our hearts before you, that you would impress your word upon them. We are under your word. We are not over your word. We do not judge your word, but your word judges us. And so we pray for the grace to conform our lives and our hearts and our minds to it in order that you might be glorified through us. We ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a very subtle sin that we tend to fall prey to, and it is a sin that sort of creeps into our lives. And before we know it, we wake up one morning or one day, or we come to our senses one day, and we realize that we have fallen prey to this sin. And it sort of comes into our life rather subtly and rather easily, and it's, I think, a sin that we are that we fall prey to degree by degree, little by little, over the course of a long period of time, and suddenly we wake up and realize how far we have fallen. And I'm talking about a sin that really lies at the root of a lot of other sins. It is a sin that once we find ourselves in it, seems to multiply itself in our hearts into a a hundred or even a thousand expressions. And that is the sin of treating as common that which is holy. It is the sin of viewing something that is holy as something that is common. We we take something that is holy, that is sanctified, that is high, that is exalted, and we treat it as if it is commonplace. We profane it or we defile it. Now, if God says that He is to be regarded as holy, and if God says that He is holy, and that is the essence of His nature and His character then to treat him as something other than holy is, I think, the worst of blasphemies and the worst of insurrections, the worst of mutinies, and the worst of rebellion. Is it not? Because it is an attack upon the very nature and the very character of God himself. And this was the sin that the children of Israel fell into time and time and time again. As you read through the Old Testament prophets and you read about the prophets who were calling the people back to their God, You read things like Ezekiel 22, verse 26, and listen to Ezekiel's indictment of the nation. He says, Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They had taken the holy things, the law of God, the word of God, the sanctuary, the offerings, the sacrifices, and the feasts, and they had profaned them. One of the ways that they had profaned them was offering you know, lame lambs on the altar and these these animals with blemishes and defects. And the Lord said in Malachi, offer them to your governor and see if he would accept you. And yet you take this holy thing, this sacrifice, this offering, and you profane it by offering what is impure and, and not acceptable. They were offering what was unacceptable in an unacceptable manner. So the prophet Ezekiel says, Her priests have done violence to my law. They have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. And they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. That's an indictment, isn't it? 
Ezekiel 23, verse 38, Again, they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and have profaned my Sabbaths. This is the sin that they fell into over and over. They got so so familiar with the sacrifices and the animals and the rituals and the the expressions of their worship and their culture and their customs, those became so familiar to them that they no no longer regarded them as holy. They no, no longer regarded them as sanctified and set apart. And they began to come into these these cultural and, and religious expressions and these duties that they had, and they had began to treat them as if they were just commonplace, everyday things. Come into the temple, and without ever thinking about it, they, they're not thinking about the sacrifice and what they're involved in and how holy it is. Instead, they're thinking about the football game that's going on while they're inside the temple getting ready to offer their sacrifice, and they're thinking about what they're going to offer for dinner. And boy, if I could just have a piece of this lamb to cook up that I'm about ready to offer tomorrow for dinner, this would be great. They began to treat the holy things as very common, very ordinary. The Lord says they've profaned it. One of the most probably memorable incidences in the history of the nation of Israel occurred in Leviticus chapter 10. The priesthood had just been instituted. The priests had just been set apart. They had just been sanctified. They had just been instructed as to all of their duties, everything that they were to do within the sanctuary. And so rather new into their priestly ministry, two brothers, Nadab and Abihu, walk into the tabernacle of the Lord, and Leviticus 10 says that they offered, quote, strange fire before the Lord, end quote. Strange fire before the Lord. Now it seems from Leviticus chapter 10 that there was some sort of an abuse of alcohol involved in the offering. Because it is immediately after this that the Lord says to Aaron, neither you nor your sons shall drink wine or strong drink before you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die in my presence. That was the instruction that God gave to Aaron right after he slew their two sons, Aaron's two sons, for doing this. So in some way, it's somehow connected with wine or strong drink, they walked into the tabernacle of the Lord and they put their incense and their fire in the pans and approached this holy service of God like it was something to be profane, something like it was just common or ordinary, and without ever even any thought into what was true of them or their heart's condition or what they had done, they walked into the presence of the Lord and did this. And you, you know what happened? It says fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. Poof. Now, now, they didn't disappear. They had to go in, they had to get the bodies, and they took them out and they buried them. But fire from the Lord consumed them. Now, lest you're tempted to think that is not very fair of God to do that. That is not very right of God to do something like that. I mean, here were these two innocent brothers. They, they, they had a couple drinks before they went into the sanctuary of the Lord, and so they offered what they offered in a way that they shouldn't have offered it. Couldn't Moses or Aaron just have taken them aside and said, Look, young man, here is what you're doing wrong, and here is how you need to correct it. But instead, fire comes out from the presence of the Lord and consumes these two men. And lest Aaron be tempted to criticize or question or argue with God about God's decision to do that, the Lord says to Aaron in Leviticus chapter 10, it is what the Lord, actually this was Moses that said this to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all people I will be honored. You know what the root problem of their sin was? They didn't regard God as holy. And God said, I will give you a little object lesson as to just how holy I am. 
Now you say, but that's in the Old Testament, and that's the God of wrath, and that's the God of anger, and that's the violent God, and we have the God of meekness and mercy and grace and Jesus and the loving. And in today's world, God would never do something like that, would he? In the church age, God would never do something like that, would he? I mean, if you had a tract of land and you, you said, well, we're going to sell this for the needs of the poor, and you, you sold a piece of land and you said, boy, we got a chunk out of that piece of land. Let's keep back some of it for ourselves. And so you keep a little bit and then you, you come into the presence of the Lord and the offering should be holy and the time should be holy and you give part of it while you keep back part from yourself. God would never do anything like strike you dead, would he? But he did that in Acts chapter 5, didn't he? To Ananias and Sapphira. Why? Because by those who come near to me, I must be regarded as holy, the Lord said. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service, listen, with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. That's New Testament instruction. We ought to offer to God what we do, whether it be service or preaching, or teaching, or picking up, or cleaning up, or giving of our gifts, anything that we do, we offer it with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. You know one of the things that plagues the modern day churches today? Is our view of God is right down here. That's how we view God. Jesus is our chum. He's our brother. He's our buddy. He's the homie that we hang with on the weekends. He is... Uh, and we sing these songs, Jesus is my boyfriend songs. They have no depth, no clarity, no meaning, no significance. It's just Jesus is my boyfriend and I love him and he loves me and he belongs to me and I belong to him. And the Beatles could have sung it or the monkeys could have sung it or anybody could sing a song like that. That's the mentality of the church. That's who our Jesus is to us. And God is our bellhop and God is our butler and God is my personal development counselor who dotes on me. That's our view of God. Friends, do you really, really believe that your Sunday morning worship time is holy before the Lord? And do you treat it as holy? And do you treat what you give to the Lord as holy? Or do you profane it? Do you realize that one of the worst sins is taking that which is holy and profaning it? And when we do it to God and to His things, it manifests itself in all of these other areas. You know what fornication is? Fornication is a sin that we commit because we do not regard as holy this vessel which is the Holy Spirit's. And so we take what should be holy and we offer it for something that is common and unclean. You know what adultery is? Adultery is not regarding as holy the marriage bed. Do you know what divorce is? Divorce is not regarding as holy my marriage vows to my spouse. All of those sins and so many more come out of this heart that treats what is holy as profane. It is one of the worst of sins to take that which is holy and to desecrate it or to treat it as common or profane. Now, if there was anybody, I think, in the New Testament times other than the Lord Jesus Himself who had a good handle on that which was holy and treated it as such, I would say it was the Apostle Paul. And that is why it is so ironic, if not moronic, that anybody could possibly accuse the Apostle Paul of treating as profane that which was holy. And yet that is exactly what they did. And that was the third accusation that was raised against Paul in Acts chapter 24. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 24. The Apostle Paul had a good handle on that which was holy and that which was unholy. 
And it is stunning that anybody who knew him, even remotely, could possibly think that he would treat as common or as profane that which was holy. Acts chapter 24, the Apostle Paul is standing before Felix, and this is part 4 of 4. This is the end of Paul's defense before Felix. You remember there were three accusations that they raised against him, and do you remember what they were? The first one was, they said, he stirs up dissension everywhere among all the Jews. They accused him of being what? Of sedition, right? Being a seditionist. The second accusation, he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and they accused him of being a sectarian. The third accusation is this one right here. They accused him of committing sacrilege. They said in verse, uh, in chapter 24, verses 5 and verse 6, that he tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. So they're accusing him of trying to desecrate the temple. That is, trying to profane that which was holy to the nation and holy to God. And they're saying he, dis- he profaned it. He defiled it. He tried to desecrate it. He tried to lower it and trample all over this holy thing. That's their accusation. Now, Paul answered the first accusation, the charge of sedition, by saying, look, I didn't have time to commit sedition. You know, only 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. I didn't have intention to commit sedition because I went up there to worship. I didn't go up there to carry on a discussion with anybody. And they couldn't provide proof of any sedition. As Paul said, it wasn't in the temple, nor in the synagogue, nor in the streets did they find me carrying on a discussion with anybody. I kept my mouth shut. I didn't have time, I didn't have motive, and they didn't produce proof of my sedition. Then he answers the charge of sectarianism by saying, look, I worship the same God, the God of our fathers. I believe the same Scriptures, all that is written in the Law and the Prophets. I cherish the same hope that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, and I pursue the same goal, which is to maintain a blameless conscience in the sight of God and before men always. So how can they, how can I be guilty of sectarianism, of leading a sect, when I worship the same God, believe the same Scriptures, cherish the same hope, and pursue the same goal. And so he just dispatches with that. Well, now Paul turns his attention to this third charge, that of sacrilege. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and Paul's going to answer that, and he's going to point to two things. First, his actions inside the temple, and second, to the absence of witnesses. First, to the actions inside the temple, and then second, to the absence of witnesses. Now, I want you to read the verses with me. Chapter 24, beginning at verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement that while standing among them, For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. First thing he does is he points to his actions inside the temple. He says in verse 17, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Now I want you to understand what's behind their accusation against sectarianism. Sorry, sacrilege. We went over this a few weeks back, but I want to remind you what the goal of that accusation is. Do you remember what the when they first seized Paul in the temple? This was months ago for us, right? Having covered that when they first grabbed Paul in the temple, that was several months ago that we were looking at that, but for the Apostle Paul, it was only a little less than two weeks prior to this. When they first seized him in the temple, what were the accusations that they raised against him? Do you remember what they were? Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against what? Against our people, against the law, against the temple, and he has even defiled this holy place by bringing Gentiles into the temple. 
Those were the four accusations. He preaches against our people, against the law, against the temple, and he has defiled this holy place by bringing a Greek into the temple. Now, how many of those accusations appeared two weeks later before Felix? Did they accuse him of preaching against the people? Did they accuse him of preaching against the law? No. Did they accuse him of preaching against the temple? No. What did they accuse him of? Trying to defile the temple. This is the only accusation that's lasted two weeks. All of them have changed now. They accused him of one thing in the temple. Now before Felix, the accusations have changed. And by the way, that's the nature of false accusations. right? An accusation is made and you deal with it, you address it, you... You, you bring it out, you put it in the light of day, and you begin to uh, debate about it and, and talk about it and show that this is false, and then, but this, and there's something else. And then the false accuser jumps over here, but it's really this. And so you begin to deal with that, and then two weeks later the charges change. It's something different. That's the nature of false accusations, and that's exactly what they did. They're only standing on one thing that they stood on two weeks earlier, and that was that he tried to, tried to defile the temple. Now, why do they hold on to that one? Do you remember why they're holding on to that one? There's something that's behind that accusation, and here's what it is. There was only one crime for which Rome would allow the Jews to execute an individual, and that was defiling the temple. Everything else had to go to the Roman courts, but they, but since Judaism was a protected religion in Rome, under the Roman Empire and under the Roman rule, there was one crime that the Romans, Romans said, we won't hear the case, we won't, it doesn't matter whether he's a citizen of Rome, nothing matters. If you catch somebody defiling your temple, you can execute them. This is the one accusation that they bring up against the Apostle Paul. And what's behind it? They want jurisdiction. Do you remember that? They want Paul transferred from Caesarea back to Jerusalem. Why? Because they have 40 men who have bound themselves under an oath not to eat or drink until they kill the Apostle Paul. Now, some of them have eaten and, and drank since that time. Obviously, it's been more than five days since that happened. But they want him back in Jerusalem. What they want Felix to do is to say, all right, you can have him. He defiled your temple. It's out of Rome's hands. You guys try him in your own courts. If you find him guilty, you can execute him. That's what the accusation is geared to do. It's geared to get jurisdiction of Paul out of Felix and back into Jerusalem, back where he can be tried before the Sanhedrin, back where they can murder him without the watchful oversight of Rome or Lysias or any of those things. And so that's the accusation that they continue with. And friends, that's what's behind the accusation. So now Paul moves to dispatch that and to answer it. And he says, look, after several years, and that's a reference to the time spent on his third missionary journey. Last time he was in Jerusalem was upwards of four years. Some people say five. I think it's more like four years. Remember, he spent two, almost two and a half years in Ephesus teaching at the school of Tyrannus and then all of that collecting of the offering, dealing with the church in Corinth and coming back through, finally arriving in Jerusalem right about Pentecost. It's been years since he was in the city. After several years, I came to present what? Alms and offerings to my nation. Now, there's two things there. Alms and offerings, or and it refers to two different things, actually. The first thing, the alms, refers to something that Paul was carrying with him when he came back from his missionary journey. Do you remember what it was? Do you remember what Paul had with him? Remember the seven men, Trophimus and Tychicus and all those guys who were with the Apostle Paul, who were traveling with him? What were they guarding? What did they have with them? They had a large love offering to relieve the poverty of the saints in Jerusalem. And Paul had collected this large love offering from all of the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. He mentions it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and he mentions it in Romans 15, where he says, I hope that my act of service, this offering that I'm presenting from the Gentile churches, will be acceptable to the Jewish churches. It wasn't. The Jews in Jerusalem 
didn't appreciate that. They were willing to take the Gentile Christians' money, but not their love. And there was continued to be this rift between Jews and Gentiles, and the offering was meant as a demonstration of love and unity from Gentiles to Jews. In fact, Paul says, the Jews have shared with Gentiles in spiritual things, and now I want the Gentile churches to share with them in physical things, to provide for their needs. And so Paul brought this large love offering, this large gift from all of these churches back to Jerusalem. Now why does Paul mention that? Think for a second. Why does he mention that? There's two things behind it. First, that's something that would be verifiable, wouldn't it? I mean, he could bring Titus, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, Aristarchus, Gaius, Luke, any one of those men he was traveling with. Could have brought any one of them in there to testify before Felix. Yeah, we had an offering and it was X amount of dollars. And we brought this from other churches back into Jerusalem to help the countrymen, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem in their worship and in their ministry and in their service, providing for their needs, it could have verified that. But you know what it demonstrates about the Apostle Paul? It demonstrates that he wasn't hostile toward his own countrymen. Now look, friends, if he's really guilty of sedition, if he's really guilty of hating his people and the law and the temple, and if he's really guilty of leading a sect and not loving the Jews and not caring about his own people, if all of these horrible things that they've said against him are really true, Do you think he would bring a large love offering like that back to his own nation when he himself could have used it? His own ministry, he could have used it? He wanted to go to Spain. He could have used it to get to Rome and to Spain, which is where he wanted to go. He could have used that money, but instead, as much as he needed it, and he could have used it for his own ministry and needs, he gives it over to the Jews as an offering to them. Does that sound like a horrible guy to you? The fact is that when he came to the temple, he came there to meet the the Jewish Christians and to give them this love offering. Does that sound like a guy who is there to defile the temple and offend his people? doesn't sound like a guy who's come to offend his people, does it? Well, Paul says, not only did I bring alms, but I brought offerings. What's the offerings refer to? The offerings is something different. The offerings was what he was doing inside the temple. Now, you remember when Paul got back to Jerusalem, you remember he met with the elders, and what did the elders tell him? The elders said, Paul... The people in this city, their hearts and their minds are turned against you. They have believed this lie. They have believed this rumor that's circulating that you preach against Moses and against our people. Because you don't require circumcision and you don't impose the law upon Gentile believers. And so the people have heard that these are the things that you're teaching. So here's what we recommend. We would suggest that you take these four men who are under a vow and go with them into the temple. Do you remember this? And pay their expenses purify yourself. So Paul, because he had been outside of Jerusalem for so long and outside of the nation, he was ceremonially unclean. So he had to go into the temple and go through these purification processes so that he could go into the inner wall of the temple, into the inner sanctuary, and fulfill the vow and participate in this cultural expression of worship with these four men who had taken the vow. And it was while he was involved in those purification rites, in offering those offerings on behalf of these four men to show that he was not hostile to the temple and not hostile to their law, it was then that they seized him in the temple. And that's what he says in verse 18. In which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. Now why does Paul mention the alms? Or the offerings that he's giving on behalf of these four men? Same reason. Listen, folks. If Paul came to Jerusalem to defile the temple, why would he have gone there and gone through all the purification rites to purify himself? Why wouldn't he have just walked into the temple? But Paul says, when they caught me, they caught me in the midst of my own purification ceremony, and they're trying to accuse me of defiling the temple. Why would I purify myself if I wanted to defile the temple? If I wanted to defile the temple, I would just defile the temple by walking into it. 
He doesn't have any need or any reason to defile the temple. All of the facts are laid out. I'm not hostile to my people. I brought them offerings. I'm not hostile to the temple. I was going through the purification, the self-purification, so that I could come into the temple without defiling. In fact, it was in the midst of my purification. That's when all of this broke loose. You know, sometimes false accusers will absolutely not be deterred by the facts. Have you ever noticed that? Somebody raises an accusation, you say, well, the facts are A, B, C. That doesn't deter them one bit. doesn't matter what the facts are. They've got their minds made up. They don't want to be confused with the facts. So they just have their accusation. They have their way of seeing it. And you can say, well, this is what happened, and these are the facts, and that's exactly what Paul does. He just points to his actions in the temple, and his actions speak for themselves. I came to give offerings, and I came to present my alms, and I was there in the midst of my purification ceremony, and that's when they seized me in the temple. Second thing he's going to point to, friends, is not only his actions within the temple, but second, the absence of witnesses. And look at the end of verse 18. It's actually the beginning of verse 19. But there were some Jews from Asia. Now stop there. The Apostle Paul never finishes that sentence. There were some Jews from Asia. And I think the Apostle Paul was going to say there were some Jews from Asia who saw me purifying myself who hate me and the Christian faith enough that they laid hands on me and drug me outside the temple and there began to beat me. The Apostle Paul never finishes the sentence. But there were some Jews from Asia, he says, who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. So immediately after pointing out that it was the Jews from Asia who seized him in the temple, or starting to point that out, Paul stops in mid-sentence and he changes course and here's what he points out. There is a legal technicality going on here. There's something legal that needs to be pointed out. Something glaring that everybody should be able to see. But the Apostle Paul wants to make sure that the spotlight is shined on it. And here is what is glaring, and here is what he points out. The Jews from Asia who started all of this, where are they? They should be here to present accusations to you. Now, who's there accusing him? Tertullus is the orator. Ananias the high priest and some of the elders, Sadducees and a few Pharisees, remember? Those are the men who were accusing Paul. Were they eyewitnesses to what went on in the temple? They weren't. They were eyewitnesses to something. What were they eyewitnesses to? They were eyewitnesses to Paul's trial before the Sanhedrin when Ananias had him struck on the mouth. They were the eyewitnesses to that, but they hadn't seen anything that went on in the temple. They weren't eyewitnesses to that. And so Paul says there are some Jews from Asia who are eyewitnesses, who could testify, who could bring accusations against me, but where are they? They're not here. Friends, do you realize that the Roman law imposed heavy penalties upon somebody who raised an accusation but didn't follow through with them? Who raised accusations and then abandoned the accusations? And in most cases, almost by default, a case that was brought before a Roman governor or a judge, if the accusers were not there and they abandoned the accusations, the case would be dropped. And Paul's saying, where are my accusers? These men can testify to something. That is any misdeed that I said while standing before them in their council. But when it comes to what went on in the temple, there were some Jews from Asia. Let them say something if they would like to. And you can hear the pins drop and the crickets chirp while somebody's waiting for a response and they're not there. Friends, this speaks volumes for Paul's case. Think of it this way. Here was this guy, the Apostle Paul, who was so wicked, so corrupt, so profane, such an evil, horrible, terrible guy that he would take the holy temple of God and he would dare to profane that in the eyes of the entire nation. 
And He has taken that which is holy and He has trampled it underfoot. He has desecrated the temple. He has defiled that, not just on any ordinary day. It wasn't just a Wednesday that He walked in there and did this. This was one of the high days of the year. During the Feast of Pentecost, He dared in the presence of thousands of these people who were in the temple and around the temple to defile this holy place. And His trial is less than a week later. And does anybody show up to accuse Him? Not a person. I guess they really didn't believe that he had actually defiled the temple, did they? Because when it comes to signing their own blood and swearing in the presence of a Roman official that these things were true, they're nowhere to be seen. Of all the thousands of people who were there that day, you would think that Ananias and the elders could produce at least one, wouldn't you think? And so here's this glaring technicality. My witnesses aren't here. Where are they? And it's like Paul realizes it halfway through. The Jews from Asia. Oh, who should have been here, who should have been here to bring accusations against me if they have anything to say, but they're not here. Friends, that's what the enemy does. That's what accusers do. They bring up an accusation and then you go to, you go to chase it down a rabbit trail and, and they're just not there to back it up. They don't have any specifics. They don't have any witnesses. They don't have anything like that. And they really did not believe that Paul was guilty of such a horrible thing or they would have had witnesses there. Because if the witnesses really believed that he had defiled the holy place and they really loved the holiness of God and really felt that this was such a grievous evil, they would have made the trip from Caesarea to Jeru- uh, from Jerusalem to Caesarea to testify at the trial. But they didn't show up. They really didn't believe it, did they? Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 1700s, I read his autobiography, not his autobiography, I read his biography a couple of years ago. And... Uh, Interesting thing that happened in the life of Jonathan Edwards. He, he took over the church in Northampton, Connecticut from his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. And Solomon Stoddard, his grandfather, when it came to the issue of communion, he would just let anybody partake of communion. I mean, it didn't matter if you were a fornicating adulterer who was sitting in the front row of the church service. That was your first time there. He would serve them communion. And this, and, and the church had done this for years. And then Jonathan Edwards took over from his grandfather and the church grew under him. And, uh, he started to come to the conclusion that maybe we should at least warn people before we partake of communion. And in the cases of people who we know to be living in sin, we should withhold the Lord's table from them and not allow them to defile this holy thing in the presence of all of God's people by participating in it themselves. That was the conviction he came to. So he started to preach along those lines. And you know how Christians are once you've done something for years and years and years, it is a sin to change. So the church didn't take to this very well because you know how we are. We've always done it this way. So it must be God's way since we've done it this way. And the church kind of got up in arms about this and there began to be this controversy. Edwards published a book on the subject, asked his congregation to read the book. Most of his congregation couldn't follow the man's basest level of thought, let alone any kind of an intellectual argument. They didn't read the book, so they gave him an opportunity to present his case. He presented his case before the congregation, and the whole congregation was in an uproar. And Edward says after that, after that meeting, everything was in more turmoil than there had ever been in that meeting house before. And so they had a meeting during that week shortly after that, and they voted, all of the area churches, area pastors, people in that congregation, they voted to fire Jonathan Edwards as their pastor. Now I want you to stop for a second and just imagine firing Jonathan Edwards as your pastor. This is the greatest intellect that North America has ever produced. The greatest theologian, the greatest philosopher. Whether you agree with Edwards' theology or not is irrelevant. He's the greatest mind that has ever been born on this continent in the last 300 years. That's without dispute. 
And he's responsible for the Great Awakening. And he led that whole New England area of our country through the Great Awakening and checked some of the abuses and preached and taught. And this is the author of Sinner in the Hands of an Angry God. Produced volumes of work. A magnificent intellect. And they fired him. And then Sunday came around. And you know what they said? Who's going to preach? We fired our pastor. Who's going to preach? We need somebody to preach. So you know what they did? They paid Jonathan Edwards to come in and preach messages in their church on Sunday mornings when they couldn't fill in with somebody else. He is such a horrible man that he couldn't be their pastor, but they could let him preach. You know what that tells me? They really did not believe that he was all that bad, did they? Because they wanted him back to preach. We had a lady who came here quite a while ago. She's not here anymore, so don't look around and wonder who I'm talking about. (laughs) And uh, she was here for a couple months, and then she came to the conclusion that the elders of this church were spiritual abusers. I don't know what the term spiritual abusers means, but she came to that conclusion. And so she called me up in my office one day, and she went into this thing about how Dave and Jess and I are spiritual abusers, how we're manipulative and controlling, and and, uh, we abuse people spiritually. And I don't need to tell you this because you know how abusive we are spiritually, do you? Uh, so this is what this went on for quite a while. It was a joyous conversation. And I got up, and it was one of those conversations where you hang up the phone, and then you say, Lord, why have I given my life to this again at the end of the conversation? And um, so she said, well, I'm not coming back because this is the time. And we tried to resolve it, called her back, sit down and meet. No, you guys are blah, 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 had all these things, false accusations. She kept bringing her children to Awana on Friday nights, or grandchildren, I should say, to Awana on Friday nights. <laughs> Now, two of the three elders who are spiritually abusive are over there every Friday night. Now, if I had a guy down the street from me that I thought was a pedophile and child abuser, and I said, I think so-and-so is a pedophile and child abuser, and you said, why don't you go to the authorities with that? And I said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want anything to happen to him because he he watches our kids once a week while Deidre and I go out to dinner. (laughs) What would you say about that? You would say, I know that one of two things is true. Either you are an idiot... Or you really do not believe that that guy is abusive. Same thing here. He defiled the temple. Well, bring the accusations to Felix. No. No, I'm not showing up. You really don't believe he defiled the temple. The whole thing was a ruse to give them an excuse to murder the Apostle Paul, and that's all it was. And they knew it, everybody knew it, and Felix could see right through it. That's all it was. I walked into a local business here in town. One more story. I walked into a local business here in town, and the person behind the counter recognized me, and she said, so when are they tearing down the old church building? I said, tearing down the old church building? Who's tearing it down? They are. Who's they? Let me know who they is so that I can get my office out of there before they tear it down. (laughs) Well, no, they're tearing it down. I said, who did you hear this from? Well, I heard it from someone. Who did you hear it from? Well, people talk. What are you supposed to do with that? I said, who's talking? Oh, I can't remember. That's the nature of false accusations. That's the type of garbage that the enemy gins up against the people of God. And friends, you and I should have no part in it at all. 
Always be slow to raise accusations against a fellow believer, particularly somebody in leadership, because Paul says you don't do that except you have two or three witnesses. And if you can't put two or three witnesses on it and you're not willing to sign your own name in blood and you're not willing to pursue the accusations, then keep your mouth shut. And recognize that you're just a tool of the enemy. We need to be slow, slow to do that. Because false accusations, they do that kind of damage. What's happening to Paul? They had nothing on him. And they're pretending like they've got some open and shut case. And they really don't. Now Paul's dispatched the whole argument for sedition. He's dispatched the whole argument of, of their, um, that they made against him of sectarianism. And then he has dealt masterfully with this argument of, of, the, of the sacrilege that he had defiled the temple. Now look what the Apostle Paul does in verse 19 and 20, which I think in 21, which I think is brilliant. Verse 20, or else let these men themselves, talking about Ananias and the elders, let these men themselves tell what misdeed I did among them when I stood before their council, except for this one statement which I shouted out while I'm in their midst. And he mentions that he had to shout it out because the council was in such disarray and such disorder. Paul said, I had to shout out at the top of my lungs. And what did he shout out? I am a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees, and am I on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead? Now, friends, what does the Apostle Paul want to talk about? What does he want to talk about? Let these men testify. I said something in their presence that they could testify to, to you against me about. What is it? Let them testify. Oh, there was one statement that I said, and if this is a crime, then I'm guilty. I believe in the hope and the resurrection. So while I was in their presence, I said, I'm on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. If that's a crime by Roman law, I'm guilty. If that's a crime by Jewish law, I'm guilty. But it's not a crime by Roman law to believe in the resurrection. And it's not a crime under Jewish law to believe in the resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul says, they want to talk about something, we can talk about something, since they're eyewitnesses to one particular statement that I made about the resurrection. What does the Apostle Paul want to talk about? The resurrection. The resurrection. You notice how he keeps coming back to the resurrection in every context? In the temple, they said he preaches against our people, the law of the temple, and has defiled the place. And Paul stood before the council and he said, I'm on trial today for the hope and the resurrection. This is about my belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they said, oh no, he's guilty of sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. And Paul answered all of those and he comes right back around and he says, this is about the resurrection and my belief in the resurrection. That's the heart of the issue. That's what they didn't want to accept. That's what they didn't want to talk about. They did not want this meeting, they did not want this trial to devolve into a debate about Jewish theology of resurrection. They didn't want that to be brought up. And the Apostle Paul keeps bringing them back to it time and time again. This is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friends, this is his ace up the sleeve. This is his trump card. This is his, this is his big ammo. And it still is for us. He wants to discuss the resurrection. And it's as if Paul is saying, you know what? Let's get to the heart of your hatred of Christianity. It's not because of my political stance. It's not because I did this. It's not because I defiled the temple. It's not because I preach. It's not because I travel. The heart of your hatred of Christianity is this. You cannot stand the idea of a resurrected Messiah. You don't want to talk about the resurrection. And he keeps bringing it back to the resurrection. And they try and get him off track and he brings it back to the resurrection. That is what they hated. It was because Peter stood up in the presence of the murderers of Christ and Peter said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised. And they hated that. And every opportunity they got, the Christians went right back to that message. 
This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has raised. That was the content of their message. And that is what they hated, and that's not what they wanted to talk about. And let me let you in on a little secret. It's not just that they didn't want to talk about the resurrection, but listen, folks. They do not want to debate the Apostle Paul. They do not want to debate the Apostle Paul. You know why? Because he would mop the floor with them. Literally. They do not want to go toe-to-toe and debate Jewish theology either on their turf or Felix's turf or Paul's turf or anybody's turf. They do not want to debate Paul. They say, do I really think he was that good? Student of Gamaliel, Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, they brought, in, they brought Tertullius along to present their case. They had to bring a lawyer, an orator, a public speaker to get up and speak on their behalf. Did Paul do that? Paul represents his own case, and he just blows the arguments of the prosecution right out of the water. And now he comes back and he says, let's, let's talk about the real bones, boys. It's the resurrection. You want to talk about something? Accuse me of believing in the resurrection. Let's go toe-to-toe talking about that. Let's talk about the resurrection of all men. Let's talk about the resurrection of Christ. They don't want to do that. Ananias and Tertullus, they're just tight-lipped. No, we don't want to talk about that. That's the end of that discussion. They do not want to get into a toe-to-toe discussion with Paul on the resurrection. Why? they got an empty tomb in Jerusalem still. An empty tomb. And no body. And no evidence. What are they going to say? They don't want to discuss it. Now here's what I want you to learn from this, folks. And here's what I want you to see in this passage. I want you to see how central the idea of resurrection is to Christianity. You know how Paul, you notice how Paul brings it up all the time? It's central. Last week, after the whole discussion about the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, some to eternal life, some to eternal death, you might say, well, you presented that passionately and, and, and you were excited about that and you preached it as if it was a live or die hill and you had to die for that. Do you really believe it's that important? Yeah, I believe it's not only important, I believe it's essential. Without that doctrine, there's no Christianity. It's not just without the resurrection of Christ that there's no Christianity. It is without the resurrection of of all men there is no Christianity. Because if you deny the resurrection of all men, then you must at the same time deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits of that resurrection of all men. And if you deny the resurrection of Christ, then you've just stripped Christianity of all of its meaning, all of its substance, all of its historical accuracy, all of its power to save. It is essential. And that's why Paul brought it up time and time again. And here's what I want you to do in the next couple weeks. Dump this one on your neighbor or on your unsaved relative or your unsaved friend. You get to talking about Christianity or you get to talking about church. Try and bring it around to the resurrection. And they ask you, what do you believe or what does your church teach? Start off with the resurrection. See where that takes you. Say, well, we believe in the resurrection of all men that all men will be raised and that someday you will stand in that body before God and answer for your crimes. See what that does for you. That's the central That's the central element of the Christian faith. It's the resurrection. And that's what Paul brings it back to. And you know why? Because from the resurrection of all men, he can go to the resurrection of Christ. And from the resurrection of Christ, it is a natural springboard right into the Gospel presentation. Because then from the resurrection of Christ, he can tell somebody, and I can tell you and you can tell others, look, the resurrection has some very important, very significant, very intense ramifications. There are some intense implications from the resurrection. And you want to know what one of them is? God has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed and He has furnished proof to all men by what? 
raising Him from the dead. The fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof of a coming judgment. That's why Paul wants to talk about resurrection. That's why he brings it back to that subject. Because from that subject, he can go right into the Gospel. Now you say, Paul has done a masterful job, and I think he has, of answering all of his accusations. Sedition, sectarianism, sacrilege. He's done a brilliant job of presenting himself, representing his own case, pointing out the technicalities, and presenting all of this out before Felix. Now, if I were standing there as Felix, or if I were standing there as part of the jury, I would be convinced, wouldn't you? I would be convinced. Was Felix convinced? Would he let Paul go? Or would he give him back to the Jews and send him back to Jerusalem? You can find out next week. We'll pick it up right there in Acts chapter 24. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank You for this reminder from Your Word of the importance of being honest, being truthful, having integrity. We pray, God, that You would give to us the grace to appreciate Your Word, to bow our hearts before it. We thank You for the grace that You give in changing us from haters of the Gospel into lovers of our Lord. Thank You that Your grace has done that for us and that You have changed our heart. You've made us willing. You've brought us to Your Son. You've given us grace and abounded on us over and over again. We are humbled and we are thankful this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.